This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This show brought to you by Constellation Media. Hey everybody, it's Alan Fersfeld speaking and this is the 48th episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast, or episode 6 of this season. Today we are doing another Science Explainy bit where you get to hear my droning voice explain some fundamentals and answer questions posed to me on Twitter over the years. We'll follow that up with a bit of news and announcements. At some point, I'll get down on my knees and beg for your support on Patreon, and let me tell you now, I don't like doing that. I'm a very proud man that I hate asking for help, so it's a little sad that I've gotten so used to these bi-weekly beg sessions. Still, we do what we must to keep the lights on and the tape rolling. And Patreon is the simplest and most direct help that you can give. The link is on the urban-astronomer.com website, along with show archives, subscribe links, and blog posts. Anyway, about that science explainy bit, it's actually a double feature today, because neither of the answers I wrote was really long enough to fill an entire episode. So if you like the show, I'm sure you'll appreciate the extra length. The first question was asked by Matthew Duplessis, and he wanted to know why planets all tend to orbit their stars on the same plane. And the second was by Anzette Duplessis, asking why it is that we can sometimes see the moon during the day. Both questions came through on Twitter, and if you'd like to hear your own questions answered, feel free to ask me at uastronomer on Twitter, or just mail me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com. I can't promise I'll answer every question this season, since there are only six episodes left after this one, but they all get filed and I promise to get to them eventually. For our third Science Explainy bit, I would like to answer a question posed to me on Twitter several months ago. Why is it that all the planets seem to line their orbits up so well? Now this question isn't asking about the usual modern Hollywood fantasy thing that you might be imagining, where something terrible is going to happen when all the planets form into a neat line in the sky, although that type of visual alignment certainly can and does happen. No, they're asking why all the planets, all the moons, and most of the asteroids and minor planets are found in the same narrow strip of sky which we call the ecliptic. How do they all come to have orbits that are in the same direction and fit within the same two-dimensional plane? Well, let's take a step back and look at the solar system as a whole. The biggest and most important thing in it is the Sun, this huge, massive ball of nuclear-powered hydrogen and helium plasma. Then, about 800 million kilometers away, or half a billion miles, we've got Jupiter, a gas giant planet so massive that its gravity affects almost everything else in the solar system. Everything that orbits the Sun is constantly nudged along by Jupiter, which subtly influences their orbits to be where they are now. Current thinking, like in the Nice model, says that planets all form in different locations to where they are now, and it was largely Jupiter's influence that gradually shifted things to their current stable orbits. Jupiter is one of the brightest lights in the night sky, and it is very obvious to regular naked observers. It's a big deal. After Jupiter, we get the other gas giant planets, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And after them come the rocky planets. According to the current IAU definition, those are Earth, Venus, Mars, and Mercury. Now after that we get Pluto, Ceres, Vesta, Eris, Makemake, Haumea, and so on. What we currently call minor or dwarf planets. There are thousands of similar objects and literal trillions of smaller things, going all the way down to the size of small rocks and pebbles. And thereby all of them, from Jupiter down to the small gravel stuff, 
all orbiting in roughly the same plane. And if you look at the planets which have moons, the pattern continues. Those are also almost always orbiting in that same plane and in the same direction. And this takes us back to our original question, why? Why should so many objects spread across the solar system, separated by millions or billions of kilometers, ranging in size from a Jupiter down to tiny little grains of sand, all be orbiting in the same way? And why are there exceptions? Pluto's orbit is inclined quite far from the standard flat plane, and it's not even circular. At its closest point to the Sun, it dips way in, closer even than Neptune. If it wasn't for the inclination of its orbit, Neptune and Pluto's paths would cross, and bad things would happen to them. Some asteroids have orbits that are wildly inclined, and comets can literally come from anywhere in wildly elliptical or hyperbolic orbits. What's going on here? Well, you might remember, towards the end of our first season, we had a whole long series of episodes about the formation of stars. How vast clouds of molecular gas and dust coalesce and collapse inwards, forming dense regions of material that continue collapsing until they either ignite and push further material away, or simply run out of material and stop on their own. The second option is how we get planets, and it's important to remember that everything that comes from these collapsing clouds is already moving. Now, the swirling material in any cloud, whether one of these vast stellar nurseries, or a storm cloud in the Earth's atmosphere, or even just some smoke puffed from a smoker's mouth, it's going to be turbulent. It swirls around, following currents responding to internal and external forces. The material in any one area of the cloud is moving in a different direction and at a different speed to the material in any other region. We've all seen this at different scales. But when a cloud collapses under gravity, that movement changes because of one fundamental law of physics, the conservation of angular momentum. Angular momentum is a function of circular movement. It's the energy carried by something as it turns, and the amount of angular momentum depends on how fast it's rotating, how much mass it has, and the radius around which it is turning, or how wide it is. So a lightweight bicycle wheel spinning at a certain speed has more angular momentum than a similar wheel turning slowly, but less momentum than a much heavier wheel of the same size that's turning at the same speed. All three of these wheels have significantly less angular momentum than a heavy steel playground merry-go-round, even if it's turning at a very slow speed. The mass, the speed, and the radius are all related to each other in such a way that for any given rotation, increasing the mass, the radius, or the speed will result in a higher angular momentum. The classic demonstration of this mathematical relationship, loved by high school teachers since the beginning of time, is a figure skater doing a pirouette. They swoop past, pivot on their skates, and suddenly they are spinning with one foot on the ice, the other in the air, and their arms spread out. And as they pull their arms in, making themselves narrower, they speed up, spinning faster and faster until they're just a blur. I'll post a link to a video on the show notes page if you'd like to see this in action. By pulling her arms in, the skater in that video reduced her radius of rotation. The only way for angular momentum to be preserved when the radius goes down is for either the mass or the speed to go up. Her mass is pretty much constant, so her rotation speeds up and it does so dramatically. So, you've got a vast cloud of diffuse gas spanning light years across, and as its internal pressure tries to fend off gravity, it's swirling slowly with infinitesimally gentle currents. Where these currents collide, denser regions form, which will become the seeds of new stars. Gas and dust fall ever so slowly into these regions, and their density increases gradually, so that more material begins falling inwards in earnest. 
But all that stuff already has momentum. It's already moving. And the odds are that the direction of that movement is not in the same direction of the fall. So if you remember us talking about orbits a few episodes ago, you'll understand what happens when a falling object has some existing motion. It ends up missing the object that it's falling towards, and you're left with an elliptical orbit. So each individual gas molecule and each individual dust particle ends up trying to orbit the center of that dense region, and it's only the constant random reflections from colliding with other molecules and particles that results in anything actually reaching the center at all. According to the particle theory of matter, which we covered in detail way back in episode 29 of our first season, all those collisions manifest as pressure and currents. This vast cloud might still only be as thin as the hardest vacuums we can create in laboratories, but it does still act like a fluid. And all those swirling currents, they're going to interact. And that means you're going to get eddies and whirlpools in the infalling material, which give us smaller localized dense areas within our protocellar cloud. But if you zoom out and look at the cloud as a whole, you'll find that eventually all those swirling currents merge and settle into one generalized average direction. The entire inner solar system-sized inner region of that cloud is now rotating slowly. And this slow spin means that different parts of the cloud end up with different momentums. The north and south poles of the cloud aren't moving much at all, so they can fall inwards relatively easily. The equatorial regions are moving quite fast and have a lot of horizontal momentum. And so they fall in much more slowly, preferring to try and orbit their center. Before long, the cloud is reduced to a hot central protostar core surrounded by a flat disk of all the material that's still trying to work its way in. Within that disk, you still have all these localized eddies and high-density regions which I mentioned a minute ago. These areas collapse inwards themselves, pulling in material from the disk, and eventually most of that material condenses out into planets, asteroids, and everything else. And since the planets were all born in the same disk, it's only logical their orbits should all fit within the area where the disk used to be. And so their orbits all line up close to the same horizontal plane. And the exceptions? Well, Perfection doesn't exist in nature. The protoplanetary disk isn't paper-thin, and planets can form anywhere within it, so some of them will be a little higher or lower than the rest at any point in time. Or to put it more accurately, their orbits will have slightly different inclinations. And since gravity is universal and reaches out forever, every single planet orbiting a star exerts a tiny gentle influence on every other planet. Now, a monster like Jupiter exerts enough pull on its neighbours that after a few million orbits, those planets can get pulled quite far from their original orbits. Although the details of how this plays out is something for another episode. Suffice to say that the first billion or so years of a new solar system's life are turbulent, with planets moving their orbits around and occasionally even colliding with each other. Even the near misses can be quite dramatic, bringing worlds close enough together that their mutual gravitational attraction becomes powerful enough to slingshot them out in completely different directions. It's generally believed, for example, and with some evidence, that our own moon was created after the rest of the solar system, that another planet about the size of Mars collided with Earth back in the early eons of our solar system, and the resulting cloud of rock debris eventually coalesced into a single body which we now call the moon. And that theory explains why the moon is made from almost exactly the same types of rock as the Earth, and why its orbit is inclined so far from the ecliptic. Other oddball objects can also have their strange orbits explained in similar ways. Comets, on the other hand, come from the very outer reaches of the solar system, a truly vast region of space dotted with trillions of widely spaced clumps of loosely bound gravel, dust and ice, formed in a region that never got close enough to the centre of the cloud to be a part of that original protoplanetary disk. These objects are all arranged in a rough three-dimensional halo surrounding the inner solar system way out past Pluto. 
Occasionally, one of the orbits gets nudged by a passing star so that they drift inwards to be accelerated by the sun's gravity, falling in a steeply elliptical orbit till they are close enough to the sun that the ices begin melting into gas and we get a beautiful comet. But since these can come from literally any direction, their orbits can also have any alignment. So, to sum it all up, the reason all the planets seem to follow roughly the same path in our sky is because their orbits are all roughly aligned with the same orbital plane. And the reason they do that is because they were all born from within that same disk of rotating dust and gas. Anything that breaks that rule either was not a part of the original protoplanetary disk or was disturbed by some external factor. A few years back, I overheard an interesting conversation between a small child and its mother. It was about 10 in the morning. The child had seen the moon and was trying to show it to his mum. She was distracted and busy and offhandedly told the kid to stop making up stories. Now, I'm a parent myself and I can relate. Kids are hard work and need constant attention and supervision and it's exhausting to be on all the time. But the kids have it hard too. That poor child just wanted to show off something cool and was basically called a liar. Because mum knew that the moon only shines at night. This all came about because children see the world around them without filters. They don't know what things are supposed to look like, so they only see what's really there in front of them. It's why they can be so incredibly perceptive, even if they don't always understand what they're looking at. But as we grow, we learn a few shortcuts that make it easier to make sense of what we see. Some people like to claim that they walk through the world with no preconceptions, figuring out everything afresh for themselves instead of yielding to established dogma. They're wrong, of course, because to do that is to live like a toddler. It's accumulated knowledge and dogma that allow us to function at a higher level. But I do sympathize with them, because as powerful as our ability to build on previously established knowledge is, it can lead us astray. And that's obviously the problem that they're trying to avoid. And one very clear example of how this goes wrong is our knowledge of the moon. Children see the moon in the sky, and so they know that it's there. But as we grow, we absorb information from around us, from our own experiences and formal education, of course, but also from what we're told by friends and family, from what we read in books and see in movies. And one message that comes across over and over again, whether in illustrations from kids' books or cartoons or film and theater backdrops, is that a visible moon means that it's nighttime. Look at any cartoon or stage backdrop. Night skies are black with some stars, a moon, and maybe even a bright sparkly meteor slowly arcing across the sky. Grown-ups know that the sky in daytime is a plain featureless blue dome, which may or may not be concealed by clouds, which aren't very interesting to look at. Kids don't yet know what the sky looks like, so they actually look at it in a way that grown-ups don't. So, when a child sees the moon shining against a blue daytime sky parents often don't even bother looking before rejecting the child's experience as false. Now, all the stuff I'm saying makes us grown-ups sound a lot less smart than we actually are. It's not that we're denying the evidence of our senses so much as that we're just not wasting time checking up on questions that we already think we know the answer to. That's why sometimes when we happen to be looking in the right direction and we do see a bright half-moon shining in broad daylight, we don't doubt that that's what we're seeing although we can get very confused about why we're seeing it. Hence, people asking me if I saw the moon shining in the daytime yesterday and wanting to know what's going on. So here are some facts. First up, the moon is the second brightest light in the sky, beaten only by the sun. 
Although its surface is actually quite dark, reflecting only 12% of the sun's light back at us, it's very brightly illuminated by the sun, and it doesn't have an atmosphere to soften that light. And of course it's really big, so there's a lot of light reflecting back to us. Second, the moon orbits the Earth slightly more than once every 27 days. This means that you can see it moving quite quickly from day to day. Each day it rises about 40 minutes later than the day before. So, instead of having the moon always rise at night and vanishing in the day, its actual position changes from day to day. So today the moon might rise as the sun sets, and sets just before the sun rises, but tomorrow it'll rise a little bit after sunset, and still be above the horizon when the sun rises again. And the next day it'll rise a few hours after sunset, and still be fairly high in the sky when the sun rises the next morning. And this will keep on until, well, 14 days from then, when they're both rising and setting together. Now obviously this means that the moon's position relative to the sun keeps changing, so that it is lit up from a different direction every day. That's where the phases come from. So that when the sun and the moon are opposite each other in the sky, so that the sun sets just as the moon is rising, well then the sun's light is hitting the moon square on from our point of view. And that means we see a nice bright full moon. But as the moon moves to a different position, the angles change, and we're now able to see around the edge, as it were. We can see part of the unlit nighttime areas. Or to put us in visual terms, part of the moon appears to have been shaved away, and it has a gibbous shape. And as the days pass, eventually we're looking at the moon side-on, finger quotes, with one half illuminated and the other half dark. It's what people usually call a half-moon, and what astronomers call a quarter-moon, because we like to confuse people. <laughs> now, it does actually make sense, and I'll probably explain why in another episode. Anyway, carry this through until the sun and moon are rising together, and by then, the part of the moon that we can see is in complete darkness, because all the sun is only shining on the far side. At best, only a tiny illuminated crescent is visible, so that the moon is a faint sliver of silver. So the upshot of all this is that you'll never see a full moon in daylight. If you time it right, you'll catch it very low down during twilight at best, and the same goes for those thin crescent moons. Because they have to be very close to the sun, they also are twilight objects. So a proper broad daylight moon is only ever going to be a half moon, or maybe gibbous. So if you haven't seen a daytime moon since you were a small child, all you've got to do is wait for the right time. Start by looking up the date to the nearest full moon on your calendar. If it's still about a week away, head out in the afternoon and look up. Or if full moon has recently passed, go out in the morning. Either way, if it's a clear day, the moon should be easy to find and you'll have rediscovered something from your childhood. Well, that was me answering questions from people I met on the internet. Hopefully it's cleared a few things up. Now, this weekend, on Saturday the 14th of September, I will be at Scopex at the Military History Museum in Johannesburg, South Africa. Scopex is an astronomy and telescope fair held every year, packed with amateur telescope making displays, uh, science shows, commercial telescope vendors, and public lectures in the auditorium. I will be presenting a talk on orbital mechanics, demonstrated through the medium of Kerbal Space Program. So basically, I'll be playing games to demonstrate the physics of space travel. Other speakers include Case Reisdijk, the President of the Astronomical Society of South Africa, uh, Dr. Peter Kotzer of the Hermanus Magnetic Observatory, uh, Professor Roger Dean of the University of Pretoria, Martin Hagen, who is a Section Director of the Astronomical Society of South Africa, and David Rogers, who will be speaking on 50 years after Apollo, with so much going wrong, how do they get it right? So if you're in the area, please do come along. 
The museum does charge a small entrance fee with discounts for students, scholars and pensioners, but it's not a lot and they need the support. It's a great day out for the family, there's a lot to see and do, there are prizes to be won, including cameras and telescopes, and of course you'll meet fellow space and astronomy enthusiasts who have flown in from all over the country. It's one of the highlights of the local astronomy calendar, and I'm really looking forward to meeting you there. Okay, as warned, this is the bit where I ask for your support. If you cannot stand to hear a grown man begging, then this is the time to skip ahead about 30 seconds. But basically, things have gotten a bit tight here at Urban Astronomer Headquarters, and we're a bit short on cash, so if you've got the space in your budget for a few dollars monthly, please think about pledging a few dollars a month on our Patreon account. The link is all over the urban-astronomer.com website, and your name will be burned into our hearts forever. If you commit to $5 or more, you'll get access to our audio library and get your name up in lights on our supporter appreciation page. If you're not up to it, or if you don't trust online begging platforms like Patreon, that's entirely cool as well. In that case, I just ask that you recommend us to a friend and show them how to subscribe or download episodes. It would also be nice if you could leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or even on the urban-astronomer.com website itself. Anything that helps people to find the show is good for me. One last thing. I announced last episode that I've joined the team at the Weekly Space Hangout and I now have a date for my first episode. I'll be on the air live on the 18th of September with Fraser Kane, Kimberly Cartier and whoever the special guest is going to be. Long-time listeners will remember the time I experimented with unscripted content and if you enjoyed hearing me flounder along speaking from the top of my head, well, you're going to love this. Follow my Twitter account at uastronomer for updates closer to the time on who I'll be sharing the mic with, the exact time that we'll be broadcasting and a link to click that you can watch it on. I'm nervous as all hell, but I also think it's going to be a ton of fun, and I'm looking forward to having you loyal listeners with me for moral support, if nothing else. But whatever else happens, don't forget to catch our next episode, which drops on the 24th of September. It'll be an interview with Dr. Jarita Holbrook from the University of the Western Cape. She had so much to say about so many interesting topics, but I invited her on the show because I was intrigued by her special interest in cultural astronomy. She'll be telling us all exactly what that is and why it's so important. Until then, though, clear skies. <laughs>